In the quietness of this hour, we wait for your spirit. Tune our ears to hear the promise of your salvation and incline our hearts towards your message of peace. Summon our will to respond to your word with justice and love that we might go forth with joy through Christ. Amen. All right, moving into our scripture reading, the first one today is from Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. The oracle, of, the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, Lord, how long will I call for help and you not listen? I cry out to you, violence, but you don't deliver us. Why do you show me injustice and look at anguish so that devastation and violence are before me? There is strife and conflict abounds. The instruction is ineffective. Justice does not endure because the wicked surround the righteous. Justice becomes warped. I will take my post. I will position myself on the fortress. I will keep watch to see what the Lord says to me and how he will respond to my complaint. And then the Lord answered me and said, Write a vision and make it plain upon a tablet so that a runner can read it. There's still a vision for the appointed time. It testifies to the end. It does not deceive. If it delays, wait for it. For it is surely coming. It will not be late. Some people's desires are truly audacious. They don't do the right thing. But the righteous person will live honestly. Holy wisdom, holy word. Thanks Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading for this morning is from Luke chapter 17, the first ten verses. Jesus said to his disciples, things that cause people to trip and fall into sin must happen. But how terrible it is for the person through whom they happen. It would be better for them to be thrown into a lake with a large stone hung around their neck than to cause one of these little ones to trip and fall into sin. Watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins, warn them to stop. If they change their hearts and lives, forgive them. Even if someone sins against you seven times in one day and returns to you seven times and says, I'm changing my ways, you must forgive that person. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Would any of you say to your servant who had just come in from the field after plowing and tending sheep, come and sit down for dinner? Wouldn't you say instead, fix my dinner? Put on the clothes of a table servant and wait on me until I eat and drink. After that, you can eat and drink. You won't thank the servant because the servant did what you asked, will you? In the same way, when you have done everything required of you, you should say, we servants deserve no special praise. We have only done our duty. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise Praise to you, O Christ. 
It is World Communion Sunday. This is a holiday started by Presbyterians given to the rest of the Christian world as a celebration on the first Sunday in October to remember that our bonds of faith are stronger than bonds of race or nationality or class or language or any other division that we can imagine. World Communion Sunday reminds us that we are for better and for worse all in this together. And that's what healthy spirituality teaches us. And we need to hear it over and over again because there are so many reasons that we forget it. We so easily fall into this delusion that we're all on our own, that we're separate, that no one understands my pain, that we live in a zero-sum game where for you to win, I will lose, and vice versa. This is the great sickness that we are under. Another name for that sickness is, is sin. See, sin is anything that, that separates us one from another, separates us from God. And communion, this is the medicine that Jesus gave us to cure our sickness. And boy, do we need a cure. There are so many things that threaten to tear us apart. And Jesus says we should be prepared in our lives because things that cause people to trip up and fall into sin, those things happen, right? Sin happens. We don't celebrate it. We don't need to be surprised by it either. Sometimes you hear people say things like, I expect better behavior from people who are in the church. You may have heard that. You may have said that yourself. Well, I, I'd love the church to be a community of virtue, and I suppose in some ways we are, but I'm not shocked when people in the church sin. <laughs> I don't think God is either. Years ago, I had a friend, this long before Asher was born, and he had kids, and he told me how as a, a parent, it wasn't his goal that his kids would not sin, because that goal would never be reached. Instead, his goal was to raise children who knew how to repent. People who knew what to do with their sin. I think that's right. And I think that's what Jesus is actually trying to teach us in this passage. And of course, you don't want to be that person who causes harm to other people's lives, right? That's what that bit about the lake and the stone around your neck means. And yes, the language that Jesus uses is extreme but his point is true, which is you don't want to be someone who harms children. Right? You don't want that on your conscience. So he says, watch yourself, watch others. When it comes to the well-being of children, we all have a duty to protect. Uh, many of you don't know this, we have a child protection policy here at Covenant that helps ensure that some of the horrifying stories that we've all heard take place in other churches will not take place here. But policies are only as good as the people who know them and abide by them, right? And so here I am as your pastor today. For all of you sitting here, those of you who are online, I am commissioning you that if you ever have a concern about the safety of a child or an adult in this church, please say something, right? You are your brother and your sister's keeper. And it's up to all of us to ensure that this church remains a place that is safe for people to grow and to learn and to worship. 
But what do we do when sinners sin? How are we to respond? Well, Jesus is as clear as he can possibly be. If your brother or sister sins, warn them to stop. If they change their hearts and lives, forgive them. Even if someone sins against you seven times in one day and returns to you and says, I'm changing my ways, you must, must forgive that person. So the cure for sin is repentance and forgiveness. Forgiveness is hard, isn't it? It's really hard. That's why the disciples say, Lord, increase our faith. They hear this must and they go, I don't have what it takes to do that. It wasn't any easier for them than it is for us. Besides being hard, forgiveness often feels foolish, if not dangerous. What does it teach a person who wrongs us time and time again that we just keep saying, oh, I forgive you, I forgive you? Doesn't that just enable the abuser to keep on abusing? Isn't it verses like these that are used by abusive people as a way to silence their victims? It's true that forgiveness language has been used by individuals, by whole groups of people as a way to say, I am not going to address historic and systemic evils. See, all of this is a misuse of forgiveness. Understood rightly, forgiveness does not cover up wrongdoings. It does not excuse abuse. In fact, it does the exact opposite. We often forget that forgiveness includes an accusation. To forgive another person is to accuse them of wrongdoing. It's precisely not covering up evil. It's precisely not pretending that it didn't happen. When you forgive another person, the first thing that you are saying to them is, you were wrong. You had no right to treat me that way. You should have known better. The first step of forgiveness is naming and acknowledging wrongdoing. When it comes to abusive relationships, whether it's on the individual level or on the societal level, we often never even get to this first step, right? I, I, don't, I can't even listen to this naming and acknowledging of the wrongdoing. But until the wrongdoing is named and acknowledged by the victim, there can be no forgiveness. So the first step of forgiveness is the accusation. And that's hard enough, right? It's really, really difficult it takes courage to, to name a wrong, especially if it involves someone who you care about or someone who has power over you. That first step's really hard. And the second step's even harder. And that's letting go. The word forgive in Greek, it literally means to release or to let go. It's to say to the person who's harmed you, I am letting go of my claims of retribution against you and I'm giving you back to God. I do not excuse what you said or what you did as if it didn't matter. It did matter. You were wrong. But I'm renouncing my need for vengeance against you. I should note that personal forgiveness does not necessarily mean that there would be no legal consequences for wrongdoing. But it does mean that you let go of your personal need for retribution. And man, is that difficult. In fact, I wonder if it's downright impossible. 
the disciples hear Jesus say, you know, do this as many as seven times in a single day, and they respond, increase our faithful. Seven is a, it's a number of completion. It's a symbol of infinity. In other Gospels, Jesus makes himself even clearer when the disciples come to him and say, should we forgive someone seven times? He says, oh no, how about 70 times seven? Which is to say there is no limit on how much we are called to forgive. After all, there's no limit on how much God forgives us. Why would it be different with each other? Now, in this passage that we heard, it it sounds almost as though Jesus is saying that before you forgive someone else, make sure that they repent first. Kind of came off that way, doesn't it? And that's lovely when it happens that way. But the rest of the New Testament makes it clear that we are to forgive people whether or not the other person repents. I don't know about you. That feels impossible to me. I'm left saying, Lord, (laughs) increase my faith because I don't have it. And Jesus says, that's okay. You don't need to worry about that. You don't need to have it. Because if you did have it, if you even had a little speck of faith, you know, like this, this almost invisible amount of faith, if you even had that much, you could move this tree with your mind. Well, I haven't done any Jedi mind tricks recently. (laughs) Guessing you haven't either. And I think that's Jesus' point. He's pointing out that this demand for forgiveness is impossible. Left to yourself, you cannot do it. You're no more able to forgive someone else who is unrepentant than you are able to move a tree with your mind. But the good news is you aren't left to yourself. Even mustering up faith isn't something God expects of you. See, forgiveness, like faith itself, it's a gift from God. It's not something you do. It's something you receive. That's why every week at the beginning of our service we have this corporate confession of sin and and, and words of forgiveness. And I know some of you don't like that part of the service because you've told me. (laughs) And I understand. (laughs) I really do. Uh, But know that we don't go through that every week to make ourselves feel bad about ourselves. And, And it's not as though you are expected to feel as though I have personally done every one of these things this week. That's not the point of the practice at all. It is a communal practice of recognizing that despite our best efforts, we still make a mess of things. We still need forgiveness. And God is always eager to forgive. And of course, I'm not the one who's forgiving you. You know that, right? I simply declare good news that God has forgiven you. That's a small but important distinction. And and we do this every week to remind ourselves that no matter how many times we try our best, we and our fellow human beings fall short and God is always ready to forgive. And so by God's grace, we learn to receive that gift. And in time, we learn to trust that it's true. And then, oftentimes, in spite of ourselves, that gift's flows from God to us and through us to other people. God gives. We receive. 
And then sometimes that gift flows through us to others. It becomes so natural that it's not even particularly worthy of special praise. Like the servants at the end of the parable, it's just part of our job description, right? Nothing special, nothing you need to give me a a cookie for. It's just something that God gave me that's passed through me to others. And I think it's the only way that it'll ever work. Right? When we look at historic injustices, like we heard about in the Habakkuk reading, or like we've seen these past many months take place in Ukraine, or if we think of the still unaddressed trauma of racialized terror against people of color in our country, both past and present, or even if we think about just the personal level of those people who've harmed you, who should have known better, Forgiveness, it's an impossible demand. Except for the fact that God forgives us forever and infinitely. And in doing so, God is not shrugging off our sin. Not saying, oh, it didn't really matter. No, no, God names it for what it is. Acknowledges it in all of its awfulness. And forgives it. And praise God, that's what God does. What Bishop Desmond Tutu said about South Africa after apartheid can be said about our country, can be said about our personal lives as well. Without forgiveness, there is no future. Because God forgives, we can learn to forgive as well. We need not be held captive by the shame of what we've done, what other people have done to us, but instead we can remember that we are all in this together. Sin separates us, makes us sick, and forgiveness is the cure. And that's what this meal reminds us. We call it communion, where the many become one. And this meal reminds us of what's true. You are what you eat. And here you get to eat Christ. Christ dwells in you. You belong to Christ. And therefore, we belong to one another. All belonging. All forgiven. All beloved. Amen.